Well, thank you. Thank you very much. And uh, David was also a tremendous blessing to me and to Mary at that time as well because when uh, part of what led into the depression that I went uh, into was spending nine weeks in severe pain with a herniated disc in my back and uh, that nine, uh, well not nine weeks but um, basically nine months <clears throat> I should have said um, and he was helping me as an uh, assistant at that time and also he stepped in and helped teach uh, some of my classes when I had to stop in the middle of the semester and have surgery and um, just a tremendous blessing to me as well as well as your pastor Brad Bigney um, had a chance to just say hi to him just before the service and I finally figured it out pulling up to the church this evening I figured out what makes Brad Bigney such an explosive preacher and you all ought to know because how could it be anything else when you're located on Gunpowder Road, you know? <laughs> so I said to Brad, I said, I figured it out. He said, what do you mean? I said, oh, you're such an explosive. He, what is it? He, so he was excited to learn too what the secret <laughs> was. So, uh, but uh, um, uh, to tell a little story on him, he came out to preach for our Men Discipling Men Conference. Uh, and this must have probably been 10 years ago, I believe, or 11 years even and um, spoke on purity and accountability and uh, some of you know Dr. Ernie Baker and Dr. Baker and I came to the university the same year and we realized after a year or so there that we didn't have the same accountability that we had in the pastorate so Brad spoke and we heard that message and we went back to my office and we said we need that accountability let's agree to be accountable to each other once a week we'll get together we will hold each other accountable. We'll just pray for each other. And uh, that was 10 or so years ago. And this morning I talked to Ernie and he told me he'd be praying for me tonight because we're still doing that uh, because we need that kind of accountability. And so I've always been encouraged by the preaching of Brad and the way he has blessed my heart. So as we begin, you know how on YouTube, if you click on it, it says in two seconds you can skip this ad? Well... Sorry, you're stuck here. Um, <laughs> we, we did bring some of our books. I, I didn't actually realize your bookstore has the book, uh, If I'm a Christian, Why Am I Depressed? And by the way, um, if I was to write a second book, it would be, If I'm a Christian, Why Am I Depressed Again? Because since this book came out, I have actually been through another, what was even a more serious bout with depression. But the same principles apply and the same God is faithful. And so in this book I say that, um, I don't know what the percentage is, now I can't remember exactly, how many people who go through depression and a serious bout once will actually go through another bout. And um, when I wrote that in this book, I was, I remember hoping and praying, well, I hope I never have to do that again. And so, um, but we did have to do that again. And um, I would like to encourage um, one of the things that happened with this book is we got turned down by everybody. That's why we had to publish it ourselves. It's self-published through on press. And um, as we were turned down by the last publisher, I was reading another book by Erwin Lutzer on um, Islam. And at the end of each chapter, he had a testimony from someone who had come out of Islam. Uh, and there was a, a very effective testimony. And all of a sudden, we got the idea, well, you know, we could add... A testimony at the end of each chapter and many times people have said what's most effective about the book is that there's a testimony from so many different angles there is no problem but such as is common demand depression is a very very common problem and so that book is available and then my wife has written a book called one with a shepherd the tears and triumph of a ministry marriage so if you'd like to know what kind of trials temptations uh, and victories does a pastor uh, and his wife go through uh, elders and their wives missionaries and their wives deacons and their wives if you're involved in ministry in any way in fact um, one of the ladies in our church back in Visalia came up and said you know I don't know if this book is good for pastors wives or not but but I'm a rancher's wife and it sure was good for me um, because it's simply the principles of how do we relate as husband and wife 
but specifically applied uh, if your husband is in leadership position of any kind, it could be sp very encouraging. So we brought along copies of that. They're available on the book table that is there. Um, my book is also available in the Resource Center. And so um, there's just an envelope there, and you can put in a check or cash, or you can sign if you don't have the money and uh, leave us your email address, and then you can send us the money. There are some address slips there. So that's all of the commercial um, that we'll do, um, except for this. Think ahead in terms of these uh, lessons that we're going through, because tomorrow morning we're going to talk about a, a specific way to handle uh, depression, anxiety, panic attacks, those kind of issues. Tomorrow afternoon, we're going to talk about the um, idea of you know, when, you're, when you're in depression, you're like negativism on steroids. Or you're Eeyore, if you know Eeyore. Uh, you're Eeyore on steroids. Um, everything is interpreted through a grid of negativism, and you're very negative with others. We're going to talk about that in the terms of uh, biblical change and the tongue and how that relates in that way. And then there will be a question and answer time tomorrow afternoon as well. And so as you're thinking and you're jotting down a question, there will be a good time for that tomorrow afternoon. Before we begin to dive into the Word at this point, I would like you to pray for three people. Number one, pray for yourself that God will speak to your heart. Ask God to do something in your life in this service that will last for eternity. Can that happen? Well, Ernie and I went to my office after a message by your pastor, and it's still going on today. That message impacted us. Ask God to do that tonight. Ask God, wherever you are in whatever situation you're in, to take a principle and put it into your life. Ask him to speak to your heart. Secondly, would you pray for me, uh, for my strength, and that I will be faithful to the word. Bob Somerville's opinion is really not worth much. But if I say something from God's word, that's worth listening to. Ask that I'll be faithful to the word. Then third, pray for someone you know tonight who is suffering. We are sinners who have become saints. You are looking at St. Bob. And I'm looking at St. Daniel and St. Mary. And if I knew your names, there's a St. Dean down here. I met Dean before the service. Um, I'm looking at all these saints. But we are still sufferers, right? Um, we continue to suffer. If any man lives a godly life in Christ Jesus, he will suffer. So who do you know tonight who needs some special prayer? So we're all going to pray silently in our own hearts. Pray for yourself first. Pray for me that I'll be faithful to the word. And then lift up someone you know tonight who's in need of, of prayer. And just pray for them and ask God to speak to their heart. So let's pray, and I'll close that time in, in just a minute after we've had a minute to pray. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that you are able to listen to all of us praying at the same time and you are not confused and you are not frustrated and you're not um, unable to hear each of us to know the needs of our heart even before we ask and to know even how you're going to answer before we ask. Lord, we praise you for who you are the great, marvelous God of the universe. You call all the stars by name. You place them in the heavens. You are the wonderful counselor, the prince of peace. And Lord, we ask you now to give to each one according to their need. And Lord, if there is somebody here tonight who just didn't dare to pray or possibly even did not want to pray, that you would speak to their heart in a special way and they would know the moving of the Holy Spirit in their life. 
And we'll give you the praise as you work. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Well, Hurricane Florence is on its way. It brought some crushing rains and winds uh, to the coast of the Carolinas. uh, And it's going to wreak more havoc. And that's the way life is. Life just keeps coming at us. There is sickness that comes. Uh, Talking to a man just before the service and his wife has Alzheimer's. There is dementia that comes. I read about a man this afternoon who retired at age 66 and had great plans, but within a year uh, he couldn't remember what the next thing was that he was supposed to be doing. Um, We have uh, the issues of the stress that we have. We, we look at the news. Don't ever watch the news before you go to bed. Uh, it's disconcerting. If you're going to watch the news, watch it earlier in the evening. Uh, and then watch it prayerfully and pray about what you see uh, rather than just take it in because it seems like most of it is just plain bad news. And uh, life is going to keep marching on. Terrorists are going to continue to attack They believe that by jihad they will bring chaos to the world and out of the chaos will come the next great uh, uh, caliph who will lead the world to the Muslim idea of peace and they believe that has to come out of chaos. So they're going to keep doing what they're doing. And so plans are made and some plans are accomplished and plans are laid but then there are unexpected things that happen. Uh, Mary and I made plans uh, we sold uh, an c- apartment building that we were living in, or I'm in a condo, and we were going to live in an apartment for a little while, and then we were going to move into the next place that we were buying. Uh, but we ended up being in that apartment for a year and a half because she had to have hip surgery and I had to have back surgery. And out of that back surgery, we led into this depression uh, that uh, we're going to talk about tonight. And let me read for you this evening the testimony of another lady where life happened. Listen to this. I was a crumpled heap. The billows of mental pain buffeted me, leaving me barely able to breathe. I agonized how how a life that had been so full of happiness, so full of God's blessing, could become so hopeless and helpless. For five months, I had fought hard against the possibility of depression. After all, Part of my job as a family doctor was to help patients recover from depression. Why was I now hearing my story in their stories, and why was I so afraid to see myself in their stories? This is my quote. Only the weak get overwhelmed and burn out. Only Christians who have bad genes or have experienced a real tragedy get depression. Ordinary Christians like me don't get depressed. I must be an apostate who is depressed because God has left me. There's no hope for me. No one and nothing can fix me. And even if they could fix me, I don't want to live without God. I don't know who God is anymore. I don't know where he is. I don't see him anywhere. Why did he leave me? Will he never rescue me or will I die in despair? My mind spun like this, minute after minute, day after day, tortured by terrifying thoughts of God and my own tragic destiny, until one day in March of 2003, I spoke these words to my husband David through waves of tears. Quote, I said, I am a ship smashed against the rocks. My life is over. Something gripped him at that moment that set us on a course that would change our lives a course that would eventually refresh my life and teach me how to embrace a grace-paced life in the midst of a world of overwhelming demands. In the months leading up to my shipwreck, I had become utterly exhausted and I had completely lost my appetite. I simply had no desire to eat. One evening, I tried to rest and read a book when suddenly, from nowhere, I felt a terror within as if something awful was about to happen. My heart was pounding for no apparent reason, and I couldn't make it calm down. And over subsequent weeks, I had several of these fearful episodes. I was very sad, and I would cry for no obvious reason. Loneliness enveloped me, even when I was surrounded by those who loved me. I became obsessional in my thoughts, 
sometimes inexplicably mulling over sad events for hours. The terror episodes came closer together so that I was constantly terrified. My heart would pound away, sometimes for hours. Distractions seemed the best policy, so I just kept myself busy in an attempt to run away from these strange and terrible sensations, but also because there was so much to be done. I dreaded the morning, and I wanted to hide under the covers, but a strong sense of the needs of others kept me going and going and going. Weeks went by when I could hardly sleep, and I cried a lot more. Nothing interested me. I felt I was a bad mother, I was a bad wife, I was a bad daughter, I was a bad Christian. Guilt over a myriad of tasks not done, or poorly done by my standards, suffocated me. And despite running at top speed, the finish line was never in sight. Concentrating on my devotions became increasingly difficult, and I felt the Lord was far away. And I could go on with her quote as she's explaining. The book is in your annotated bibliography at the back of the notes for this session. It's by a lady named Shona uh, Murray. Um, she was, uh, or is, um, a now a mother of five, but at that time she was a pastor's wife. The church, the small denomination that they had gone through, that they were in, had gone through a split. Due to that split, her husband had lost the church that he and she both really loved. She was a practicing MD. She was a mother with three children and one on the way. And she was a homeschooling mom of two with a two-year-old and, a one, uh, and one on the way. So the fourth one was coming. Now they have five. But um, that was kind of a little background. But listen to her story. Mine would be much like that. Mary will go into more details of my timeline uh, tomorrow when she speaks about what it's like to be the one caring for someone who's going through depression. But think about it. Listen to what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 9.11. I again saw that under the sun that the race is not to the swift and the battle is not to the warriors, neither is bread to the wise, nor wealth to the discerning, nor favor to men of ability, for time and chance overtake them all. And you know, that, you, know you came into the life bald and screaming, and you may go out bald and screaming, you know, uh, and toothless too, you know, as far as that goes. Um, so time and chance overtake us all. But, don't you love that? I love when the word says but, because I love it especially when it says that in Romans 8.28. But God works all things together for good. And we know that he causes all things to work together for good. So we have, yes, time and chance overtake things. And there may be the time when you will hit the wall and depression will come like a ton of bricks, but God is at work even in that test and even in that trial to work in your life. The psalmist said in Psalm 77, 12, I will ponder all your work and I will meditate on your mighty deeds. And Solomon says in the book of Proverbs, watch the path of your feet and all your ways will be established. We need to stop when the issues of life hit us and when we come to the point where I came to that I'm going to describe in a few minutes and where Shona Murray came to and where her husband David Murray came to and all of a sudden we say, you know, I'm depressed. How did I get here? What's God doing? We need to stop. So what I'm going to do is combine the testimony of Elijah with my testimony, and we're going to look at that tonight. But I want you to use your, imagine, your evangelical imagination for just a minute. You know the story of Elijah. If you don't know it, you need to go home over this weekend. Uh, don't do it tonight. You need to get rest for tomorrow. But you need to go over this weekend and read 1 Kings 17, 18, and 19, and the life of Elijah. But imagine... Um, Jezebel doesn't go up to the mountain. She's waiting to see what happened. And so Ahab has been up on the mountain. We know what happened, right? God answered with lightning. It eats up the altar. It eats up uh, the, the, thing, the sacrifice on the altar and the stone, and it leaves nothing. The water is disintegrated. And then the 450 prophets of Baal are put to death. God sends rain. Uh, Elijah runs back in front of the chariot all the way uh, down uh, to town. And uh, 
all of that has happened. Now, what's Jezebel thinking? I'm imagining that Jezebel is thinking, whoa, you know, Baal answered by fire up there on the mountain, and, and you know, the prophets were victorious, and, and everything is good, and look, it's raining, you know, this is great. I can't wait to hear what Ahab's got to say. So she hears those familiar footsteps coming down the hallway, and, hey, uh, you know, what happened up there on the mountain? And he says something like, you know, because uh, he doesn't really want to tell her what happened up on the mountain, because, you know, Jezebel is not the easiest woman in the world to live with. And, uh, and so he doesn't really want to tell her. He says something like, you know, well, the Samaritan tiger's lost in the chariot races again today. And no, 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 what happened on the mountain? So he gives her the whole story. And she becomes unglued and says, you know, well, I'll make that prophet Elijah like the ones that he killed today, you know, by tomorrow at sunset. And so all of that has happened. And uh, Elijah now, you know, what kind of, of answer is he going to give? If anybody is the, if Superman was the man of steel, Elijah is the prophet of steel. And, you know, you're just kind of waiting as you turn the page, what's his answer going to be to a, this threat that Jezebel sends? And he's running for his life. What? This doesn't fit the pattern. Um, but that brings us then uh, to, the, to the testimony that we have in Elijah's life and God as his counselor, which is what we're going to look at this evening in the time that we have. And remember, 1 Corinthians 10, 6 says that all of these things that happened, happened for our example. We're supposed to learn from these examples. But before we go there for just a minute, how common is this problem of depression? Well, uh, there was an article that appeared in uh, February of 2007 written by a lady named Cephalio, and she says, six million American men will be diagnosed with depression this year, but millions more suffer silently. They're unaware that their problem has a name or they're unwilling to seek treatment. And it goes on to say in that article that instead of talking about their feelings, men will mask them with alcohol or drug abuse or gambling or anger, and they'll become workaholics. And even when they do realize they have a problem, men often view asking for help as an admission of weakness, a betrayal of their, their male identities. One of the men that came to sit with me while I was suicidally depressed and they didn't want to leave me to, alone... Uh, as we were talking that afternoon, he told me, you know, Bob, I've gone through this myself. I said, well, who did you talk to? He said, I didn't tell anybody. I didn't tell anybody at church because I figured they wouldn't know. Besides that, you know, I was embarrassed. I didn't tell anybody. What did you do? He said, I kept a, an old sweatshirt in the car because I didn't want to really have a towel there. And he said, I would pull over to the side of the room before I got home and I would soak that thing with my tears. And then I would just say, pull it together. And I would go home. And I would face my wife and my kids. And then I'd do it again. He said, and I actually, I said, I don't know. After about six or eight months, it just kind of went away. But he wouldn't tell anybody. She goes on to say in the article, the result is there's a hidden epidemic of despair that is destroying marriages and disrupting careers and filling jail cells and clogging emergency rooms and costing society billions of dollars in lost productivity and medical bills. It is also creating a cohort of children who carry the burden of their father's pain for the rest of their lives. Our definition of a successful man in this culture does not include being depressed, down, or sad. In many ways, our definition is the exact opposite. A successful man is always up, he's always positive, he's always in charge, and he's in control of his emotions. And you know, I would say to you in the evangelical Bible-believing circles, our idea of a successful man is the same. A Christian is always up, a Christian is always on top of it, a Christian is never depressed. We don't have room for Martin Luther. We don't have room for Charles Spurgeon. We don't have room for Pastor Tommy Nelson down at the Denton Bible Church in Texas. What about a biblical counselor at the Master's University who's pastored for 35 years and taught biblical counseling for another seven years 
Where does he fit in when he is suicidally depressed? Well, that's a question. How do you determine that? Well, there's a great book by uh, Ed Welch called Depression, A Stubborn Darkness. And on May the 20th of 2009, or May the 21st, it was the day after Mary's birthday, Mary said to me, Bob, you're depressed. And I said, I'm not depressed. I know what depression is. I'm a biblical counselor. I'm not depressed. She said, you're depressed. So I took Ed Welch's book off the shelf. I went out and we were living in an apartment that time and didn't have much room. So the apartment building had a lounge across the hall. I went over to the lounge and I started to read. And this is what I started to read. I read read his book. I got to chapter 3. And in chapter 3, he spells out from the DSM-4, what are the nine symptoms of depression? And if you have five or more out of the nine, then you're depressed. And so I looked at them. A depressed mood most of the day, nearly every day, as indicated either by a subjective report of feeling empty or sad, or the observation of others uh, that he appears tearful or sad. Well, my wife knew I was depressed, and David Gabriel, the elder in our church, knew I was depressed. And uh, they were saying I was depressed, and I definitely had that depressed mood. Then the second one was markedly diminished interest or pleasure in all or almost all activities of the day, nearly every day. And I can tell you that that was the case. Remember what Shona Murray said. She had no interest in things that used to interest her. And during that time, I didn't have pleasure in anything. I didn't like reading anymore. I didn't like sports anymore. I didn't like mysteries anymore. I didn't particularly want to watch Monk anymore because I thought I was Monk. It used to be funny, but now I watched it and it wasn't funny because I had the same kind of uh, crazy types of fear. Significant weight loss when not dieting. Well, in a six-month time frame at that time, I'd lost 50%. I'd lost 50 pounds, and I wasn't dieting, and I wasn't on a diet. People, Bob, people would say to me, Bob, you look good. And I'd say, look, if this is a diet program, you don't want to be on it. Um, and then insomnia or hypersomnia nearly every day. I couldn't sleep. Psychomotor agitation. When I would try to talk to people, I would sit there, and I would be going like this, or I would be clasping my hands and unclasping my hands. And... Uh, I was guilty again. And then fatigue or loss of energy nearly every day. I would stare at my computer for hours at a time pretending I was doing something while I was doing nothing. Uh, Feelings of worthlessness. You heard what Shona Murray said. I wasn't a good wife. I'm not a good mother. I'm not a good daughter. I'm not a good Christian. And that's the way I felt. Uh, I didn't believe I would ever teach again. Didn't believe I would ever preach again. Didn't believe I would be able to earn a living again. I believed we would live the rest of our days in my brother-in-law's basement apartment. Now, it's a nice basement apartment, but not exactly the way I planned to spend the rest of my life at that point. And uh, uh, I just thought life was over. A diminished ability to think or concentrate. Indecisiveness nearly every day. I used to grade an ACB test in about three hours. I continued to grade ACBC tests during that time. I continued to do some directing and encouraging of folks like Michael testified tonight, uh, David testified tonight. And I continued to do that, but instead of it taking three hours to grade a test, it would take me about three days because I couldn't keep my mind on things. It took me 10 to 20 minutes to get dressed in the morning. I would think, oh, I could wear that shirt. Well, no, I don't want to wear that one for this, for this reason. You know, if I wear that shirt, we have to iron that shirt, and then it'll have to be washed, etc. And after doing this, you know, um, for 20 minutes, I'd put on the same thing I put on yesterday. My wife said there were certain clothes she never wanted to see again after we finally got done uh, going through the depression. But I just couldn't concentrate. Recurrent thoughts of death or recurrent suicidal ideation without a specific plan or a suicide attempt, or a specific plan for committing suicide. Uh, The symptoms are not due to the direct physiological effects of a substance, a drug abuse, or a medication. Um, And so uh, I was thinking about suicide all the time. I was imagining how I could do it. And it was there, and it hadn't been there before, but it was there now. And I'm up to number nine now, 
And I was a 9 or a 10 on every one of the points. And that's where I wrote in the margin of the book, I am depressed. How did I get here? Well, that's where we begin with the outline now, if we can pull it up, uh, in terms of how do you develop a severe case of depression? Well, let's think it through. With Elijah's life, have some comparisons with my life uh, and see what we can learn in this way. Well, first of all, a fear of men, rather than believe God, believe the circumstances. Now, what happened in Elijah's life... um, He doesn't comprehend the physical and emotional strain under which he has been living. And we're going to talk about that more in a few minutes. Uh, Possibly, Elijah at this point is is not seeing all the results that he expected to see. We don't know because we're not there and we can't really question him. But the fire of the Lord fell on the mountain. And the text says in 1 Kings 18, 38 and 39, The fire of the Lord fell, consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust, and it licked up the water in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. But that's all we have. We don't know what he was expecting. But now the next thing that comes down the pike is Jezebel's threat. And she threatens to take his life in chapter 19, verse 2. And at this point, he doesn't have any further visible proof. And he does what? He runs for his life. You know, we're expecting. What will the superman of steel, the prophet of steel, say at this point? But... He doesn't follow through with the pattern of his whole life. What is the pattern of his life up to this point? The Lord says, and Elijah does it. The Lord says, and Elijah does it. The Lord says, and Elijah does it. And he's seen people raised from the dead. Uh, He has been protected and fed by the ravens. The oil and the flour has not run out. Uh, And he has seen tremendous victory. And and just a few days before... He has confronted the king. And when the king says to him, you troubler of Israel, uh, Elijah, Elijah turns around and says, I'm not the troubler of Israel, you are. And I mean, I'm going to go down there and confront the president. You know, I'm just going to tell him, you know, you're the troubler of our nation. You know, well, you know, that's kind of a scary situation. But there's no fear of man there. And he responds and he's up on the mountain. Remember, right before 450 prophets of Baal. Have you ever had to confront your boss? Pretty scary, huh? Have you ever had to confront your wife? Well, that can be pretty scary. Have you ever had to confront your kids and it's been scary? But he confronts 450 prophets of Baal. But something has snapped. And now he's afraid. It says in 19.3, verse 3, he was afraid. Well, he should have, you know, done what he did before and stood up to Jezebel but he doesn't. And many times it happens. Men fall at the point of their greatest uh, grace. Moses was the meekest man that ever lived. But what happened when he fell? He got angry at the people and he struck the rock when he should have spoken to the rock. And uh, we have other, you know, Peter is the one who's always speaking out. And then the servant girl said, aren't you one of those guys? And he's, oh, no, no. I don't, and he curses even and denies Christ. So that can happen, and he runs for his life. The fear of man can lead to depression. But another thing that happens is he neglects his duty. Uh, in uh, the next place in 19.3, he runs for his life. He doesn't seek God. All the way up to this point, he's been seeking God in everything he does. But now he doesn't seek God, he just runs. Uh, Before, in 1846, the hand of the Lord is upon him, and he girds up his loins, and he runs, he outruns the chariot all the way into Jezreel, but now he's afraid, and he runs for his life. The pattern of his life has been to stand for God, and the hand of God has been with him, but now fear overcomes him. He neglects his duty, he doesn't continue to stand as the prophet of God, but he turns and he leaves. People who are depressed need to be encouraged. Continue in your duty, remember, as you can. 
because there may be need for rest. We're going to get to that when we see how God counsels Elijah, but not to, de- to go away from everything. I did not teach the following semester after this depression began, but I did continue to do grading of the exams. I did continue to follow up with students, um, but I went off of teaching. I did what I could. We'll talk a little more about that later, but not leaving everything because just neglecting all your duties can cause the depression to spiral. And then the next point is neglect your physical needs. I want you to think with me about what Elijah was under regards to pressure. Remember what we talked about with Shona Murray? She is a pastor's wife. She's a mother. She's a mother of three with one on the way. She's a homeschooling mother of two with a two-year-old in there while she's pregnant and expecting. Her husband and her church has gone through a denominational split. They've lost that. She's having to continue to work as an MD uh, to help support the family because he's out of work. And so all of this is going on. Well, what was going on in Elijah's life? Well, there's the emotional tension of confronting a king. We've already talked about it. What's it like just to confront your boss or to confront another co-worker? Just one person. Uh, there's that emotional tension of confronting the king, the emotional stress of living under hand-to-mouth conditions. The ravens are feeding him. By the way, ravens are feeding him. Ravens eat roadkill. I'm not sure, you know, but that's how God was providing. Then there's the widow. The flour and the oil don't ever run dry, but it's a daily thing. Then there's the emotional stress of extraordinary call to ministry. Just imagining the ministry that he had. You go to the king, you tell the king it's not going to rain, you have to go into hiding. That's an emotionally stressful ministry. The emotional stress of living under the threat of death. Everybody's looking for him. Where's Elijah? Because we want to string him up. The emotional tension of having to confront the king again. Then the emotional tension of confronting the prophets of Baal. 450 to 1. And how does Elijah do it? With a sense of humor. Why don't you guys shout a little louder? Maybe your God's in the bathroom. You know, that's what he's saying to them. He's mocking them. And uh, uh, he's calling on God to work. God is going to work. And he pours water on the altar. God's going to answer by fire. And we already read the text about how God did answer by fire. The emotional tension of waiting for God to answer with fire as he prays. It's a very short prayer that he prays. But God answers. And uh, as he slays the animal and flays that animal and pours on the water, and he waits then for God to answer, and God answers. By the way, there's no record of Elijah eating anything that day. There's There's no record in the text of him eating anything. The emotional joy then of seeing revival in Israel, it's exciting, but it's draining to see emotional, um, to see revival, to see joy, because the people cry out, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. And then the tension of overseeing the execution of 450 prophets, 450 prophets in one day, and they're all slain, and it says Elijah did it, Okay? That's tension and stress. He's praying then for rain. He tells Ahab, go get something to eat. And then he prays for rain, and he sends his servant seven times, and then God answers with rain. And then he girds up his loin, and he runs the 15 or 26 miles. That's a marathon, and he's running it in front of the chariot. This guy is a man of steel, okay? And God has worked in his life, and God is providing all that strength, is he directly in the center of God's will? No one could have done what he did. It's not humanly possible, but he did it. Now, think about it. Significant sleep loss can cause all the side effects of an LSD trip. I'm well aware of that. On August the 12th of 2009, I was that close to being committed to the psychiatric ward in the hospital near our home. And if it wasn't for the medications that they were able to give me that day to bring me down, um, and actually the medication they gave me that day, I thought I was completely healed. 20 minutes after they gave me that shot, it was like I was normal again. 
I couldn't believe it. I was calling people all afternoon, telling them, God has answered, I'm healed. Well, I wasn't. But the medications that had been given at that point settled me down in such a way that I thought I was. But sleep loss can have a tremendous impact. And um, all of this stress, you neglect your physical needs and there's going to be a price to be paid. And we as biblical counselors, you are not a doctor. Well, maybe some of you are doctors. I don't know. There may be some medical doctors here tonight. But I'm not a doctor. I'm not the son of a doctor. My grandfather was a doctor, but that really doesn't count. Um, And so we have to, though, work with good physicians and realize that stress, emotional tension, those kind of things can have a tremendous impact, and we need to find out what's going on in their lives. And then again, uh, he forgets to seek the guidance from the Lord. A contrast, again, the last few chapters, and uh, he's not now seeking God's guidance. He doesn't do anything. He hears the threat, and he runs for his life. Could Jezebel really carry out the threat? I don't know. She just lost 450 prophets of Baal the day before. When she wanted to kill Naboth and get him out of the way, did she send him a warning? No, she just plotted it and did it. I think that uh, Jezebel is just sounding off. Um, I don't think she could have carried out what she said she was going to carry out. I don't think God would allow it. Of course, he didn't allow it. But he doesn't seek God's guidance at this point. And uh, we know that because it says in the text in chapter 19, verse 9, and chapter 9, verse 13, God asks him, Elijah, what are you doing here? And so he hasn't been seeking God um, at this point. He's just fleeing for his life. And then he's praying according to his feeling. If you want to get depressed, pray according to your feelings. So what does he pray? In chapter 19, verse 4, he says, Lord, take my life. You know, I'm the only one left, Lord. Just take my life. Now notice, notice the contrast in the sense of uh, he's not really consistent. Elijah, why are you running for my life? Elijah, what are you praying? Lord, take my life. That's not really consistent. See, I, I, did, I wanted to die. I, you know, my back had re-herniated. Uh, they were recommending a second surgery. My family said, you know, you're not going to have a second surgery because we don't think you'd make it through just because of your depression right now, that you are so depressed you couldn't handle a second surgery. And, uh, uh, but I was thinking, let's do the second surgery and hopefully I'll die on the table. Uh, you know, that'll be, that's what I want. I was thinking about dying. I was thinking about suicide. But I was also thinking the same thing Shona Murray was thinking. I must be an apostate. I couldn't be thinking these thoughts. I couldn't be feeling the things I'm feeling. I couldn't be going through this kind of thought pattern. If I was really a believer, I just couldn't be thinking this way. So then I'm thinking, well, okay, if you step off the sidewalk in front of the car, you go from the frying pan to the fire. Because if you're not saved, you're going to hell. My theology is still really good. And that kept me from acting on, on what I was thinking. Because this life may be hell on earth at this point, but that's real hell, and I know what that's like. And I believe that. And so I wasn't going to act on that. But a praying according to your feelings. You don't pray according to your feelings. How do you pray? According to God's will. 1 John 5.14, you can write in your notes. <clears throat> this is the confidence we have before him. If we ask anything according to his will, we know that we have what we have asked of him. So, Because we're asking according to his word. So Elijah's pattern, what else does he do? He rejects Christian fellowship. He leaves his servant there, and he travels another 80 to 120 miles out into the desert, uh, And so that's another really, really long hike. And he's all alone under the broom tree. When you're depressed, you need Christian fellowship. Don't turn it away. Go to church, even if you don't feel like going to church. Why? Because you need that fellowship, whether you can taste it or not. If you've seared your tongue because you drank coffee that was really too hot, and you've seared your tongue, you know, for several days you can't taste your food. But you keep eating because you know you need the nourishment, even though you can't taste it. So you can't taste anything in church. You feel like everything is negative. 
when you hear the truth preached, you think it doesn't apply to you anymore because of all the negative thinking you're going through. But you go and you listen and you ask God to apply it to your heart even though you can't uh, feel it or uh, uh, be thankful for it in that sense with your feelings. And so you continue to do that uh, one right thing. I used to go to church and people would say to you, how do you feel, Bob? And I would think, I feel like dirt. But I don't know that you really want me to say that to you. And I didn't know how to answer people because that's the way I did feel. I felt miserable. I felt lonely even in the midst of people. I felt um, abandoned. I felt that I was no longer worthy. Uh, and of course, we're not worthy anyways. Um, and so uh, I would ask friends like Laura Hendrickson, you know, what do you say? She said, figure out something you can say that's true. So uh, we came up with this idea that I could say, I really feel lousy, but God is good and he will sustain me and I know the future is secure in him. Now I believed that was true, but I didn't feel that that was true for me, but I could still say that having to come up with what you can say. And then you don't take time to get your facts straight in terms of depression. Um, he doesn't have his facts straight. You know, I'm the only one left. The depressed people see everything through a field of negativity, and I'm the only one left. Wait a minute, what about your servant? Wait a minute, what about Obadiah? Wait a minute, what about the hundred people that he's hidden in the cave? You see, he doesn't have his facts straight, and... Uh, when you are depressed, you see everything through that grid of depression. And then you center your thoughts and your actions on yourself. He ran for his life. He said, I am the only one left. Lord, take me home. He's only thinking of himself. People ask me, what's the most significant thing you learned through the depression? And I say, I say the most significant lesson I learned is how miserably self-centered I really am. I thought of no one but myself. It was all about me at the center of everything. It was just about me. Now, those aren't the only steps that can lead into depression, but they are a number of them. And again, uh, you want to keep reading. But how does God counsel Elijah? And we're going to have to really move through this um, this evening because our time is rapidly evaporating. But how does God counsel him? Now, remember, God is the counselor. In this case, look carefully because God's the counselor and God is omniscient and he knows everything. So he doesn't have to start gathering data like you do. He doesn't have to get Shona Murray's timeline and find out, well, I'm not surprised she hit a wall. She's a pastor's wife. She's a mother of three. She's got one on the way. She's got a toddler. She's homeschooling two. They've been through a denominational split. They've lost the church they love. Her husband's out of work. She's having to put in extra time as an MD to help support the family. No wonder she's under that kind of pressure. No wonder Elijah got depressed. But God knew the whole timeline, so he doesn't have to do that data gathering because he's the wonderful counselor who already knows everything. Now, by the way, this is a by the way, okay? Um, and the, by the way, is if Jesus is a wonderful counselor and you as a Christian are to be conformed to the image of Christ, then all of us should be equipping ourselves to be wonderful counselors. This isn't a specialized ministry because every Christian is to be like Christ. Christ was a wonderful counselor. So as you disciple anybody, you should be discipling them as to how to be a wonderful counselor for others. So what does he do? First of all, God gives his servant rest. He lay down and slept. You could have expected God's judgment, but he gives his servant rest. It's so important. Uh, God gives him sleep. Proverbs, I'm sorry, Psalms 127.2 says he give his beloved sleep. Don't counsel people that are exhausted. Get them some rest. Listen to me now. What does Usain Bolt, Rafael Nadal, Rafael Nadal LeBron James, Roger Federer, Michelle Wee, Serena Williams, and Tiger Woods. What do they all have in common? They're all athletes, right? Okay, they all have that in common. Now, take out Tiger Woods. What does Usain Bolt, 
Rafael Nadal, I'm sorry, I never can say his name correctly, LeBron James, Roger Federer, Michelle Wee, and Serena Williams, what do they all have in common? Okay, I can't hear, but I'm going to give an answer. What they have in common is sleep. Usain Bolt averages 8 to 10 hours. Nadal, 8 to 9 hours a day. LeBron James, 12. Roger Federer, 11 and 12. Michelle Wee, 12. Serena Williams, 10 to 12. They are understanding what sports medicine is saying. We all need about 9 hours of sleep a night. The average American gets about six. Sleep is important. And what does God do, the wonderful counselor? He gives his servant sleep. Now, Tiger Woods averages about five hours. And I'm wondering if Serena Williams didn't get a short night's sleep before that last match. Okay? Okay. I'm not sure, but uh, anyways... Um, that aside, rest is so important. Then he gives physical nourishment. Behold, this time, no ravens. He sends angels. And the cake that he gives him is a very special cake. He takes care of the physical. And then God gives him proof of his love. He gives him the sleep. He sends the angels. He sends the food. He doesn't deal with us according to our sins, nor reward us according to our iniquities. He could have just zapped him. Okay, Elijah, you want to come home? Zoop! You know, I sent the bolt yesterday. I can bolt you today. Um, and he could have done that. But he doesn't treat him according to that. 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithful, faithless, he remains faithful. God is faithful, and he shows us his love and cares for us in that way. And then God gives his servant an awareness of his power. He shows him his power. There's power in the wind. There's power in the earthquake. There's power in the fire. God's arm isn't short. He is Jehovah Jireh. He is the provider. And he is the one who will care for us in every way. And we need to put our mind on him. Our, I was talking to a uh, counselor today, and what he was saying in his own struggles that he was going through is, I just have such a small view of God. I've been reading Isaiah 40 today just to get my mind on how great God is. He spoke this whole place into being, and he knows the stars all by name. And we need to keep our minds on the power of God uh, and teach the person who's depressed about the power of God. And then in terms of that, that passage in 1 Peter is so important. In 1 Peter... Peter says in chapter 5, uh, verses 5 uh, to 11, you know, he says it's time to get dressed, so clothe yourself with humility. Uh, you know, you don't want to go up against God. What you want to do is humble yourself under the hand of God and just begin to pray. You know, it's, it's humbling that because of my back problem. I can't pick up the things that I used to pick up. Uh, I, had, I had to tell the secre secretaries it's nap time. I laid down and took a nap this afternoon for an hour because I knew that I needed that nap in order to be able to teach tonight. I can't do what I used to do, and I have to humbly admit, God, I need you. But you know what? We are to remember that in every case because without me, you can do what? Nothing. Nothing. But with Christ strengthening you, you can do all things. And so that passage says, humble yourself because God cares for you. Cast all your anxiety on him. We're to pray without ceasing. We're to be casting everything on him and asking him to help us. We need him in every situation. Um, and one of the ways that we humble ourselves is just saying, Lord, I need you. You know, like we, I came home from um, being out with some friends for lunch, and Mary says, I can't find my book anyplace. And I, she was looking for her book, Trusting God. And I know, I had it. I was just, she, I've looked all over the place. And I said, well, we, let's pray. We'll just ask God. So I, then I went over to the couch and said, you, you know, you've moved all the pillows on the couch? Yes. And I said, but then she had her black notebook, you know, this size, uh, laying on the couch, and the other book was under that book, uh, under that notebook, and I just happened to pick that up, and there we found it immediately. And just praying, and then I said, you know, we just need him for everything. And then I explained to her that when I was walking to my car, I was talking so much with my friend that I had, 
automatically taken my keys out of my pocket and I put them in this hand. But then as I got to my car, I'm, I'm searching in my right pocket and my keys aren't there. And I said, oh, no, I said to my friend, what in the world did I do to my keys? I must have left them in the restaurant. And then I went to turn like this and I, oh, I have them in this hand. And so we need him all the time for everything. And that's what that text is saying. And cast your anxiety on him. And remember, look out for the devil in 1 Peter 5, 8, because he wants to devour your soul. But resist him, what? Firm in your faith. And then when you resist him, firm in your faith, and you trust in him, not your feelings. You keep doing the next right thing. You don't obey your feelings. Uh, If you just look around in 1 Peter 5, 9, everybody is suffering. But it says then in verse 10, that suffering is just for a little while. And when I was in the midst of the depression, I didn't think it was a little while. I thought it was forever. I thought the light at the end of the tunnel was a train coming at me. Um, I dreaded the day because I didn't want to get up. I wanted to hide under the covers too, like Shona Murray expressed it. But then I dreaded the night because the night was so long and I couldn't sleep. And I just didn't want to go on at all. I didn't feel like it was a short time. But it says then that the God of power, who is the God of grace, and that God of grace who called you, and that God of grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, and that God of grace who called you to his eternal glory, what is he going to do? He's going to perfect you. That is, he's going to strengthen you, he's going to repair you, he's going to adjust you, he's going to mend you, then he's going to confirm you, and that word means to turn you resolutely around and in a right direction, and he's going to establish you, and it means to strengthen as well. And then the next word, stenetho, means to strengthen you, and it means that he will then literally uh, strengthen you and confirm you, and the next word is he will establish you. And then it says, that word establishment, he will, he will make you like a foundation. He will settle you. And what Peter is doing is using synonyms and piling them up together. God's going to perfect you. He's going to confirm you. He's going to strengthen you. He's going to establish you. There aren't any unfinished projects in God's garage. He's going to complete the work that he started in you. And then God gives him a vision uh, of his presence. And then he gives him an assignment and he sends him back. Uh, to uh, serve and to uh, walk with him. And so um, what I want to do in conclusion is just remind you of five things. You see them there in your notes. Um, You need to believe God and believe his promises and trust in them. You need to examine your heart for any issues that need repentance that are sin issues that need to be repented of. We will talk tomorrow morning and touch on the, where, there, I mean, where there is simply sin issues that, deal, that cause depression, where God is actually depressing you as a discipline to bring you back to himself in repentance. So we, we always have to be considering what are the sin issues. We need to talk to ourselves, not listen to ourselves. We need to say what is the truth, not listen to what our feelings are saying. And you need to trust yourself to fellow believers. I had to have, I know, counselors all through that time who were counseling the counselor and telling me. They would say, Bob, you know this, but let me tell you. And I needed that. And then just do the next right thing by faith and trust God to work. And again, we have covered this very rapidly this evening. Uh, and we'll have more time to open it up tomorrow morning and then uh, in the session tomorrow afternoon and then the Q&A that we have. But this gives you kind of an overview, and I would encourage you especially, uh, don't forget those aspects of getting the timeline and knowing where those people are with relationship to diet, to exercise, and to sleep patterns uh, in particular. Because those issues are causing great stress and need to be really addressed as we address those that are going through counseling. And we need to address, of course, the issues of sin. Uh, As I said, we'll talk about that uh, more tomorrow morning in terms of how that relates as well. But recognizing we are complete and whole individuals and we need to respond to God and 
respond to his great love, he doesn't treat us as we deserve. I'm very grateful that he didn't answer all my prayers where I ask him, Lord, just take my life. I'm so thankful that he didn't do that. Um, I'm so thankful that he opens up doors and works in our hearts and there are further opportunities that he gives to us. So let's pray together. Father, you are good and you are gracious and you are powerful. And you know the end from the beginning. You saw Elijah's need. You met his need for rest. You met his need for refreshment. And then you met his need in helping him to understand he wasn't the only one left and that there was still a task for him to do. And you led him uh, into how to accomplish that, not in his strength, but in your power. Actually, truths, Lord, that he already knew, but he needed to be reminded of by the wonderful counselor. We thank you, Lord, <clears throat> that you are that wonderful counselor in our lives. Continue to give us strength for this evening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.